We welcome many of you that are coming back from holiday and, and being away for different reasons, but it's good to see you all uh, here once again. I hope that when you came in today, uh, that if maybe all of you, or at least most of you, I don't know if we ran out or not, but if you notice, we were passing out some books as you came in today. Now, if you didn't get one today, uh, don't worry, we can make more. But if you have one of these today, in fact, look, at I can put it right on the big screen there. You can see that. This is a book for all of you to keep with you so that you can start taking notes, like we're back in school again. Now, I wanted to give these out to all of you because, at least for me in my own devotional life, I like to write things down. Even when I'm planning a sermon, like I did for today, when I go throughout the week and I, and I read the text that I want to preach on on any given Sunday, I read it over and over and over again, and then I sort of walk away and I meditate on it. And I think about it. And I try to think about what God may want to say to the church today. But if you're like me, those thoughts sometimes vanish. And I don't know where they go sometimes. I feel like I only remember half of what I think about during the week. So it's important for me to get a notebook or something and just write these things down that I don't forget. Now I wanted you to have this not so that you can try to write verbatim everything I say today. Please don't do that. And please don't be so involved with writing notes that I see you looking down through the whole entire service. No, but if you hear something today that makes you say, Amen, write that down. If I say something today that convicts your heart and you know it, write that down. And you can think about it this week and pray about it. Or if I just say something that you don't quite understand and you have a question, write it down. And then throughout the week, if you want to visit again the sermon on YouTube and make more notes, or if you want to take this to your connect group, if you're not a part of a connect group, get involved. And you can bring these thoughts and these questions and these notes that you have, and you can share it with a group of believers during the week. And so I'm just hoping that through the use of something like this, we can all learn Romans together. I recently heard a well-known preacher speaking to a church on the book of Romans, just as a summary over Romans, and he told the church that in his experience, in all the years that he has ministered, and with all the churches that he has visited, he said, if you are a part of a church that actually walks you through the book of Romans, then you are blessed. Because there are not many churches in the world that will actually go through the book of Romans. Now people talk about verses in Romans and we talk about certain topics from it, but it's rare to find a church where you will actually go through from beginning to end the book of Romans. And so, consider yourself blessed today. Amen. You're welcome. So let's go back into Romans. We have finished what we call the introduction Paul's greetings, what's on his heart concerning them, how he wants to see them so bad and just be there to encourage them and to build them up and preach the gospel. And now today we come to what is probably the key verse of the entire book of Romans. We come today to the theme of everything Paul wants to expound upon in the letter to the Roman church. 
In fact, you can find it in verse 16 and 17, but today we're going to concentrate on just one verse, verse 16. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn them to Romans chapter 1. And just to connect from last time we talked about this until today, we're going to read verse 15, 16, and 17. Romans chapter 1. And again, we can look at this as the major theme. This is what Romans is all about right here. All right, so if you have that in your Bibles, can you stand with me? Amen. So beginning at verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are, who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. You may be seated. It's that one verse, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. This is the major theme that Paul expounds upon throughout the entire letter to the Roman church. And in today's verse that we want to look at, in that verse 16, we want to look at this theme and just begin to talk about it in three parts. Because Paul sort of divides up this theme into three parts. Number one, he talks about the gospel of Christ. Number two, he talks about the power of God. And number three, the salvation of believers. And once again, he doesn't leave this subject alone in verse 16. He'll continue to talk about it all throughout the letter. But today we just want to sort of look at it as an overview to the theme of Romans. Today's sermon is titled, Wonder Working Power. I could have just called it the power of God, but you'll see why in just a few moments, why it's wonder working power. Amen. So if you're ready, let's begin as Paul unfolds the theme of Romans in three parts. Number one, he starts with the gospel of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That word, ashamed, when someone is ashamed, it means that they are embarrassed about something. Or they feel guilty about something. That's what it means to be ashamed. Now you and I, and probably rightfully so, we say things like, I am ashamed of the way I used to live my life. I'm ashamed of the things I used to do. Are you with me? I'm ashamed of the sins I have committed in my life. We say things like that. Now, we don't just go around meeting people and saying, hey, let me tell you about all the sins of my life. We don't do that. You know why? 
because it's embarrassing, isn't it? It is such a shame that we would go through such things. And we don't want to talk about the things that we are ashamed of, that we are embarrassed of. We wished that there are things that we have done that we never did. We wish we could change the past. We are ashamed of things in life. Paul here says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, I don't feel guilty about being a Christian. And I certainly, I am not embarrassed to preach the gospel of Jesus. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. I don't feel guilty about who I am now and the message I proclaim. I am not ashamed. This gospel, when Paul preached it, and when we preach it today, the gospel that we preach is not a philosophy. The gospel is not about new ideas. The gospel is not a, about a way of thinking about things. The gospel is not about a list of do's and don'ts to try to make your life better. This is not what the gospel is. You know what the gospel is? Simple. Facts. Facts. That's what the gospel is. The facts of the gospel are this, that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, he is the eternal son of the living God, who has no beginning or no ending. And that man, Jesus, who lived the perfect life and ministered to people and showed great love and compassion and power, he went to a cross bearing our sins and died for us. And when he died, in three days, he rose again and raised to heaven. Those are the facts of the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. Paul would say later on, here's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised to life. There it is. The gospel is about facts concerning Jesus, not philosophy, not some new way of thinking about something. When you look at the book of Acts, Acts is full of facts. <laughs> when you look at Acts, you find there are many sermons that are preached by Peter, by Stephen, and several by Paul. And the words of their sermons are written. And if you look at every sermon preached, you know what you find? All they're doing is proclaiming the facts about Jesus. Who he was, what he did for all mankind, and the fact that he lives forevermore. That it's God's gospel and it's God's good news. The gospel is all about facts. And so Paul, the moment he got saved, he went off to preach the gospel of Jesus. The Bible says that immediately he went to the Jews. As Paul would say about this gospel, it's to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And that's how Paul sort of practiced his preaching. When he went into a new city, the first people he found were the Jews in a synagogue. He preached to them the gospel, and then he went to the marketplaces and into the streets and into the public square to preach to all the Gentile world. 
As soon as Paul was saved, he went right to the synagogues and he began to proclaim the facts about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And as a result of preaching this gospel, most of the Jews hated Paul and they rejected what he said. In fact, they despised it so much that they were ready to persecute him and even ready to kill him. In the very beginning, they were already taking up stones to stone him to death simply because of the gospel he proclaimed. And then he would go to a Gentile part of the world, like into Ephesus or into Athens. There's a story about him going to the Areopagus, which was a, a hill called Mars Hill, where all the philosophers would gather every day to teach new things. And everybody wanted to learn just a new dimension of philosophy. Paul went there. And do you know what he talked about? The facts of who God is. The facts of Jesus of Nazareth, that he died and rose again. And when he preached, they responded by laughing at him, mocking him, and calling him a babbler. There are a few saved, but for the most part, they rejected the gospel. And we know that eventually Paul will go to Rome as a prisoner in chains. And as the people stare, look at this man, supposedly the giant of the church of Jesus Christ, look at him in chains. What do you say now, Paul? He would say to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to Rome in his chains, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. Now Paul makes it very clear. The Jews rejected, and many of the Gentiles rejected the gospel. And the question is, well, why? What exactly did they reject? I mean, if the gospel is about facts, which fact or how many facts did they disagree with? Paul boiled it down to one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. That was the one thing, which is the heart of the gospel. That was the one thing people despised. For the Jews, Paul says it was a stumbling block for them. In other words, they could not comprehend that God would come into the world and allow himself to be crucified on a cross. Not so. And the Greeks, well, they laughed at the whole idea. For the Gentiles or for the Greeks, they would say, how can a man who dies the most horrible death of crucifixion, how can we call that man a savior? And Paul said to the Jews, the message of the cross is a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, the Greeks, to them, it is foolishness. And yet Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God. What were these people trying to do to Paul? Through their persecution, through their imprisonments of him, through their torturing him, and through their attempts to kill him, what were they trying to do to Paul? They were trying to bring shame to him. They were trying to embarrass him of his gospel that he was preaching. They were trying to make him feel guilty about what he believed and what he was teaching. And if they can embarrass him enough, then maybe he'll stop talking. Be quiet, 
shut up and stop talking about the gospel. They tried to put him to shame, only to find they couldn't do it. Do you know today the world still does the same thing? The world tempts you, Christian, to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. How so? Young people who are in high school right now, or young people who are just getting into college, you will find someday, you will sit in a classroom being taught by a professor who proclaims great wisdom, and you'll find out that this person has one agenda, to prove his atheism and to prove that Christianity is a joke and foolishness. And if you believe in such things, you are a fool. You will find such a professor. And you know what you'll also find? That most of the students in your classroom agree with the professor. So what's the temptation in that day? You will want to be quiet. You will not want to say anything for fear of embarrassment. For, feel that, for fear that they may say something to you to make you feel sorry or guilty for what you believe. Some people in their families, maybe you have parents, maybe, maybe you have a, an unbelieving spouse, unbelieving parents, unbelieving children, and they reject your faith in Christ. And they let you know that they're disappointed in you for the decision that you've made. And they tell you, don't bring that stuff home. When you're home, don't talk about this gospel nonsense. We don't want to hear it. We reject what you say. And in that moment, what do you do? You'll be tempted to be ashamed to even speak of the gospel of Christ. And it goes on. Just look at the world around you. For those of you who love social media, and parents, I often encourage you, look at what your kids are watching and listening to on social media. Because most of it is filled with the garbage of this world, trying to convince your children there is no God. There is no Christ who died for us. It's foolishness. Foolishness. And the problem is, our children, and maybe even some of us, we spend so much time listening to these people. And when you look at the world around you, and you see how evil it's becoming. And you can even look at nations and watch their governments encourage this darkness of morality and sin. They encourage it and they support it. And according to the world, there is one enemy. And somehow, some way, we've got to get rid of this one enemy. Who is it? It's the church. It's the Christian. Because they keep proclaiming this gospel of Jesus of Nazareth that he died for our sins and rose again. They reject Christ. They don't want to admit that they need him for salvation. The world tempts you today to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, for the sake of truth and for the sake of love, don't ever be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For the sake of truth, this whole world is abandoning truth. So many young people, 
They don't even know what truth is. They come to the absurd thoughts that there is no truth. Whatever you think is truth, okay, that, that's good. Whatever I think is truth, okay, that works. There is no truth. Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. The world abandons truth. And they also have abandoned the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. By me, Jesus says. That's the gospel. It's all about that person. But by me, Jesus says. Don't abandon the truth of Jesus Christ. For the sake of truth, don't be ashamed. And for the sake of love, for the sake of love. I often wonder, what do the angels of heaven think when they look down upon us and they see how we live our lives? Even those of us that claim that we follow Jesus Christ, what do the angels think about us? Well, I believe that they look upon us and they wonder, like, how are we so rebellious sometimes? Why is it that we often doubt the Word of God? Why are we so slow to believe the words of Jesus sometimes? Why are we so quick to go off and do our own thing in life? Why is it that just like Isaiah said about us, that all we like sheep, we go astray? Every single one of us, we go our own way. And the angels, I believe, wonder why we do such things. And why would God love such creatures? But you know what the Bible says about Jesus? In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. Jesus was not ashamed to come into this sin-filled world and to take upon himself your sin. He wasn't ashamed to go to a cross and be crucified naked before all to see. The Bible says he's not ashamed of you to call you his own brothers and sisters. In fact, in Hebrews, it gives us a picture about how one day Jesus will approach his Father in heaven and he will say to the Father, here I am and all the children that you have given to me. Here we are, my brothers and sisters. The night that Jesus was betrayed, the Bible says that all his disciples forsook him. They were afraid, they were ashamed, and they fled away. They ran in fear. All of them forsook him and left him alone. Well, after three days, he rose again. And on that resurrection morning, he showed himself to Mary Magdalene. And he said to Mary Magdalene, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and I'll see them there. Even after forsaking their Lord, he calls them brothers. And when Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples to tell them these things, maybe at the very point where they're embarrassed and ashamed of their, their lack of faith, and they're running away and forsaking him, she says, no, listen, Peter, 
Listen, John, James, and Thomas, all of you. He's calling for his brothers to go and meet him. And oh, what a comfort that must have been to their hearts. Jesus, in love, is not ashamed of you. So Christian, in love toward him, don't ever be ashamed of the one who died for you. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Who can testify of the power of God? The gospel of Christ, and now we come to number two, the power of God. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because I know what it's done in me. And I've seen what it's done in others. And if I take everything that I've seen and everything that I know about the gospel, I could sum it all up by saying this. It is the power of God. The power of God. That word power in this verse, the Greek word here is dynamis. And dynamis is where we get our English word dynamite. It's like explosive power, dynamite. But in the New Testament, this word dynamis is used all throughout the New Testament. And it describes God's power. Dynamis. It means wonder, working power. The power of God. It's the word used in the New Testament that describes the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit. For example, in the beginning of the Gospels, we have the angel telling Mary, who is a virgin, who has not known a man yet, and yet she's going to conceive and bear a son who will be the savior of the world. And her question to the angel was pretty obvious. How is that going to happen? I am a virgin. I have not known a man. How can this be? And the angel said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be overshadowed by the dynamis, the power of the Most High God. And when Jesus was baptized in water and he came out and God the Father spoke from heaven, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, John said that the Spirit descended like a dove and alighted upon Christ and remained upon Jesus. And when Jesus went into his public ministry, the Bible says that he went in the dynamis, the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he began to proclaim the good news, he worked miracles. And when he did his miracles for all to see, the Bible calls it works, or his mighty works. The translation of that word is dynamis, the miracle-working power. The power that healed the blind and opened the ears of the deaf. The power that raised the dead man from the grave. 
The power that delivered demons, delivered people from demonic possession. In fact, there was a time where Jesus did such a thing. He delivered someone from a powerful demon. A demon that had a strong hold on someone. And yet Jesus spoke and delivered that man. And all the people were astounded by it. And Jesus said to them, I do this by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the dynamis power of God. And the Bible also tells us, like even in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead by the dynamis of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, wonder-working power. And when Jesus was about to send into heaven, He said to His disciples, wait here in Jerusalem, for I am sending you the Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon you, you will receive dynamis, power from on high, power to be my witnesses, power to proclaim the good news. And as you read throughout the book of Acts, over and over, we see the power of the Spirit of God saving people from sin and working mighty miracles through those who believed. Holy Spirit, he is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dynamis of God, the wonder-working power of God. This shows us how much the Holy Spirit is involved in life and in salvation itself. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He convicts the world of sin, this world that loves sin, this world that enjoys living in sin. They are slaves to sin and they don't even know it. The Holy Spirit comes to convict mankind of sin and of righteousness. Everybody in the world today, without God, they do what's right in their own eyes. They don't know God's righteousness and they don't care. But the Holy Spirit comes to open their eyes to God's righteousness. And the Holy Spirit convicts all man that there is a judgment to come. That this world is not about you doing whatever you want to do, and you'll never have to be accountable for it. No, we must all appear before the judgment of God. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit, not the pastor, not me. I don't and I cannot convict anyone. As a preacher, all I can do is preach the Word of God. But I cannot touch the depths of your heart. I can't see what's inside. I can't touch and I cannot change what's in your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do such things. And the Holy Spirit does this through the proclamation of God's Word. When I preach to you today, and I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not just merely here to lay out a bunch of information for you, and you can sort of scan through it and decide, what do I like, what do I not like? I'm not asking you to make some sort of intelligent decision about what you think is best to do in your life. That's not what this is about. 
through my preaching of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is at work right now. In fact, He's walking among you right now. He's searching your heart right now. As I speak, the Holy Spirit speaks to you in the depths of your heart. He comes to you and He speaks and He says, do you hear? Do you hear what's being said? Do you understand? Do you understand these words? And then the Holy Spirit will begin to show you things, things that you may not have seen before, like the sins that you've committed. You've never felt condemned about it before, but all of a sudden, you have an overwhelming feeling of conviction in your heart. He shows you your sins, like how often you're angry. He shows you and reveals your idolatries, your sexual perversions in life, your lying, your gossiping, your stealing. He reveals all these things to you. And then He shows you that you are someone in desperate need, not of something, but of someone. And then the Holy Spirit directs you to Jesus Christ. Sometimes, well, I know that every time the Word is proclaimed, there's power. Sometimes, God does amazing things. Last year, or the year before, I had someone come to me at the end of the sermon. A wonderful man came up to me and he said, and not even a believer yet, but he said, when you preach and, and I hear what God says in, in, in the Bible, I don't know, I can't explain it, but all I know is that it's powerful. And it hits me in my heart. And it shows me things I didn't know before. And he said to me, did my wife tell you what I've done? I said, no. No, I don't know about anything you've done. Are you sure? Are you sure my wife didn't tell you the things I've done? No, I, I haven't even talked to your wife. No. He said, because in your sermon, you were talking to me. You were pointing out the things I was doing in my life. My sin, my need. How does that work? I said, it's the power of the Spirit of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He shows you your need. He convicts you of sin. And then He says to you, come and believe. Come and be forgiven. Come and be healed. Won't you come and trust in Jesus? And when you put your trust in Jesus, the one who loved us and died for our sins, and was raised again to new life, it is by the power, the dynamis of the Holy Spirit that we are, as the Bible says, made alive. Or as Jesus says, born again. Or as Paul would say, regenerated. It's when the Holy Spirit takes you in your death and He brings you to resurrection life and you begin to live in Christ. And the Holy Spirit takes out your heart and He gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats and longs for God. And it longs to do as God says. And it longs to search for God and to know Him and to be with Him. That is the work of the Spirit of God. And Paul calls it the dynamis, the wonder-working power 
of God. Amen. This power of God, I've seen it. I've seen it. And I don't have to tell you stories from other parts of the world. I'll tell you stories of what's happened right here. Right here in our church. In the seats that you are sitting right now, there have been dozens of people sitting in your same seat who heard the gospel and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. There are those who stood where you are and they responded to the gospel by giving their lives to Jesus Christ and they were saved and set free in a moment. We've seen people in our church saved from their sin. Even the sin that they never thought that they could overcome, God has given them deliverance. We've seen people healed of diseases and even cancer. We've seen people, marriages healed and restored. We've seen people delivered not only from sin, but even demonic possession, all by the power of God. And we have seen lives transformed, regenerated, reborn, made new. God says, behold, I make all things new. And this work is done through the Holy Spirit. So according to our verse, we come to salvation by the power of God. And the Bible also says that we are kept by the same dynamis power of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he's speaking to the church who are kept by the dynamis power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Fear not. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in this sanctuary. He doesn't wait from one Sunday to the next to see you and to talk to you and to touch your life. The Bible says that He dwells in you. Romans chapter 8, Paul will say that the Holy Spirit by whom God raised Jesus from the dead, yes, that same Spirit dwells in you. And God gives you life through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He dwells in you, He seals you, and He keeps you throughout this life of faith until we see Jesus face to face. The power, the wonder-working power of God. And last, the salvation of believers. I see kids coming to the sanctuary, and that's pretty much my signal to hurry up and get done. Number three, the salvation of believers. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Believes. The gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Well then, we better know what it means to believe. Yes, the gospel is true. It's fact. And yes, there is wonder-working power in it and in salvation. But if we don't believe in these things, all we can do is talk about it and not actually experience it. So what is believing? What does it mean to believe? Is it simply to say, okay, I agree, yes, the gospel is true. I believe the gospel. Is that it? No, it's more than that. 
There's a difference between believing Jesus and believing in Jesus. There are many people that I've met, even here in Samarang, that have said the most wonderful things about Jesus, who he is. They've said that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he's the savior of the world. They have said and have believed such wonderful truths. And when I have said to them, do you believe in him? They say, no, he's not for me. Not for me. I don't need him. I found another way. I can find a different way. I can take care of myself. You'd be surprised how many people I've heard who believe Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't actually trust in him. John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us about believing. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. In this verse, John, he relates this believing in Jesus with receiving Jesus. There are many people that believe Jesus, but they have not received him. Meaning, they must go from saying, Jesus is a Savior, or Jesus is the Savior. They have to say, Jesus is my Savior. I have received him. I will honor him. I will trust in him. He is my Savior. I need him and only him to be saved. That's what it means to trust in, have faith, believe in, receive Jesus. And I'll close with this, young people. When I confess, when you confess that Jesus is my Savior, God says in the verse, become, become. Our part is to believe and to receive, and then God says, become. It's the same language used in Genesis chapter 1. When it says that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, that the whole earth was void, and there was darkness, and there was waters covering the earth. And in that darkness, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in that moment, God spoke. And he said this word, be. He said, light, be. And there was light. In the same language, it says now that in our dark lives, without any light shining whatsoever, the Spirit of God came upon us. And he showed us Jesus Christ. And when we believed and received, God spoke into our darkness. And he said, become, become. And through his power, we became the children of the living God. That's the wonder-working power of God. Musicians, would you come and join me here at the front? I wonder how many of you need this wonder-working power in your life. Maybe you have not received Jesus as your Savior. And if that's you today, I pray, I believe that the Holy Spirit's already talking to you. 
He's already showing you that you're a sinner and you need to be saved. Maybe there are some of you that need this wonder-working power because you need healing in your body or in your life, in your spirit, in your mind. Maybe something going on in your life, in your family, your marriage, where you work, with your friendships. You need God to do something amazing, something that we would call the wonder-working power of God. If that's you today, I can assure you from what we just read, the Holy Spirit can do anything. The Holy Spirit can meet you in your time of need right now. And look to your left and to your right. There sit among you many who will testify, I know this wonder-working power of God. And they would tell you, trust in Jesus. Call upon his name and then watch this power work in your life. Sister Verna, do you have a song for us today? Let's sing the song together. Let's stand together. Let's sing together. Let's worship God together. And then we'll pray.